1: The profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Where faith comes to life. Well, hello and welcome to the profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, and this is the show where we interview a different Christian about their life, faith, and work every week. And uh, just before we get started on today's programme, there's just time to let you know this programme is brought to you in association with the magazine that I help edit. It's Premier Christianity magazine, and you can get yourself a free sample copy from our website right now. Just head over to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Now today, my guest is Peter Stanford. He's a journalist and broadcaster, former editor of the Catholic Herald. He currently publishes features for the Daily Telegraph, and his latest book is Martin Luther, Catholic Dissident, and it's published by Hodder and Stoughton. Peter, welcome to the (laughs) programme. Thank you. So there's been many biographies, obviously, of Martin (laughs) Luther, one of the leading figures of the Reformation. What made you want to write another one? Uh, They say sometimes there have been more books written about
0: Martin Luther than anyone else other than Jesus, really, which is uh, quite a claim. Um, several things, really, I mean, in terms of there the being so many already, what I thought was uh, he Luther certainly kind of in the english speaking world, has become s- sort of the preserve of um, uh, kind of other Lutherans, really, and not that that is a bad thing mm-hmm. and, and obviously, one wants to celebrate the sort of founder of your church or whatever, but it but it felt very excluding when you read them mm-hmm. and very kind of uncritical in lots of ways. And the other group who who, um, who write about him a lot are academics. Now, again, wonderful thing. You know, I went to university. Universities are very good things. Mm-hmm. But often they c- it can be written about in a sense that that, it, that is, again, inward looking. It's It's comparing with mm. other academics mm. and uses very academic terminology. And I suppose the easiest test of it and not that this is ever an infallible test, and so please don't do this at home, <laughs> is if you Google Martin Luther, okay. um, and what you get immediately is um, Martin Luther and the Reformation, obviously, but very, very quickly, literally on the first page, he is completely swamped by Martin Luther King.
1: Right. Okay. So, yeah. um,
0: And I think that that's partly because people very easily and readily understand the relevance of Martin yes. Luther King in terms of what's going on in the world, whereas Martin, Martin Luther seems a bit dusty and yes. distant, really. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I can't count the number of times people said, oh, what are you writing about at the moment? And you'll go, oh, Martin Luther. And they go, oh, yeah, now, yeah. Um, Southern United States and civil rights they go, no, 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 no. And obviously Martin Luther King was named after Martin Luther. Martin Luther King was born Michael King. Right. And in 1934, his father went to Germany to a Baptist ministers' conference and found out about Martin Luther and thought he was such a great man that he renamed his son. Wow. So that's why we have Martin Luther King. So there is that kind of sense that that, that, that Luther is has been sort of pushed into the background, really, and Mm. that people don't understand his relevance. And I suppose what I thought, well, partly we've got this 500th anniversary Mm -hmm. coming. This is the 500th anniversary, 31st of October 2017, of Martin Luther, I'm going to say issuing the 95 Theses, because we could have a long discussion about whether (laughs) he nailed anything anyway. He didn't. Right. Um, The great thing about Martin Luther is everything that he said and wrote and uh, felt about himself is all recorded, There's a 121-volume archive in Weimar in Germany. It's all in there, and nowhere nowhere, nowhere in any of that does he ever talk about nailing anything to any church door at all. Yeah. So what he says is that he certainly wrote the 95 Theses and Theses are, you see, this is where language gets very distracting. People think, Theses? What Was he writing 95 academic papers? What were mm. you talking about? Theses at that time were debate points. So what he wanted to do was start a debate in the Catholic Church and he sent the 95 Theses to his local Archbishop. His local Archbishop, who was a rather kind of wet lettuce, sent them on to Rome and asked Rome to deal with them. Um, the, the G Genius of Martin Luther was that at the same time he um, he handed over the, tra- the 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 copies of the 95 theses to local publishers. This was the era of the birth of the printing press. And these publishers started circulating crudely made copies, often boiled down, often with woodcuts on them for illustrations. We're talking mm-hmm. about an age of not widespread literacy, mm-hmm. And they spread like wildfire. It's a bit like Martin Luther tweeting the 95 uh, Theses okay. now. Yeah. It's, it was a social media whirl yeah. of the time. Yeah. And this very quickly, 1517, um, 1518, made this frankly obscure friar from a really obscure university mm. in Germany. We're not talking one of the great sort of centres of learning. It was a new university founded only a few years beforehand, it made him the most famous man in Europe. So people at that time completely understood his relevance. Mm. So what I wanted to find out, going back to your question, (laughs) because I am answering your question, really, what what I wanted to find out was, is he still relevant to now? What is the relevance of Martin Luther to now?
1: That's fascinating. Fascinating stuff here already. And I want to delve (laughs) more into, into obviously what's in the book and more about Martin Luther a little bit later on. Um, But before that, I just wanted to, to sort of throw it back to you a little bit. And ask, where did the interest in writing first come from for yourself? Because obviously, you know, this is a substantial book and you've written other books that are just as thick. Stop saying it's substantial because it makes it sound <laughs>
0: like it's really dull. Substantial <laughs> book sounds like boring and hard to get it's through. It's not boring. It's Thank just you. thick. T- Thank you. I'm trying how to.
1: Many, how many pages? Is it? 400? It's thick.
0: not I'm thick. It is... Uh, <laughs> it is... Uh, it is uh, it's getting on 400. But don't let that put you off. I mean, the whole point about writing it was to make Luther accessible. Mm. So I'm not a theologian. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I, I can can understand theology but I'm not so I don't use any of those words and even down to very simple things you know uh, one of the things Luther did in terms of changing what Catholicism did was he cut down from seven sacraments to two lots of people in 21st century Europe have no idea what a sacrament is so you need to explain that you know when you get on to the really complicated things Mm. you know the thing that Luther is most associated with justification by faith alone Mm. Uh, you know, people or, have no yeah. idea what that could possibly mean. So, th- yeah. this is a book very much written so people who are interested in Luther will understand. There are no, mm. well, the difficult words are there, but they're all explained.
1: Very good, very good. <clears throat> so, what was it about writing and journalism? You know, when, when was that first? <laughs> when oh, that first God, that's a long time ago. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I sometimes give talks in schools and they sort of say, I want to be a journalist. What made you want to be a journalist? I mean, I could, I could give you the prosaic answer or I could give you the... the I mean, the practical answer is I left university and, uh, and I think I wanted to be a theatre director. So I went back uh, to my parents' house... And settled in and waited for someone to come and knock on the door and say, please come and be a theatre director. And nothing happened. So it was the summer holidays and I needed a job. So I came down to London and a friend of my brother's gave me a temporary job in the post office, the post room, post room of a big city um, insurance company. And it was great because, you know, it really wasn't very much of a strain and, um, and I was in a big capital city and life seemed full of possibilities. And then it got to September and everyone else I knew was disappearing off to get a job and I didn't have one. And then the, uh, the guy who ran the post room came to me and said, look, you've really grasped what we do here very quickly. You could have a career here in the post room. And he thought, oh. Oh, is that my future? So I started looking in, um, uh, what do you call them, sheets that my university appointments commission used to send out. And there was a job advertised for the tablet a okay. Catholic Weekly. And it said that they, they were looking for a kind of editorial trainee. And you had to have two things. You had to have been to a Catholic school, mm-hmm. qualified, yeah. and you had to speak Italian. And my brother actually lived in Italy. And so I spent a lot of time in Italy. Okay. And I was really good at things like beach Italian, Bar Italian, street Italian, restaurant Italian. I think I'd even worked briefly on a radio station, an English-language radio station in Rome, when I was out there one summer. So I could do all of those right, things. Yeah. I got the job, marvellously. Arrived on the first Monday morning, and the reason they wanted someone who could speak Italian was they had the daily version of the Vatican newspaper, which is called the Osservatorio Romano, which was all in Italian then. Mm-hmm. And they were all stacked up on my desk waiting for me to arrive, and I opened them, and my Italian really, really wasn't up to that. So I fell into it for, for prosaic reasons. But I suppose... for, for practical reasons but I think in a more prosaic sense what I feel very 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 passionately about um, is the power of words Mm. I I love words and one of my excuses for being terrible at other foreign languages is I think you can only know one language in in Mm. and out so you know any word that you might use now or that I might use now we might use them differently Mm. words work in all sorts of ways and the way you can put words together and make something interesting couldn't be more fascinating yeah. and i remain completely enthralled by it
1: absolutely i mean when i call your book substantial i mean one thing and clearly you thought another <laughs> so it just proves your point <laughs> well if you call me substantial i'll take it really badly because that just means i'm fat <laughs> um you mentioned you were you were raised a catholic i guess you oh, absolutely catholic absolutely um you know do you look back on your upbringing with, with fond memories
0: i do now Not the time. (laughs) Well, I don't think think at any any stage, any teenager loves their their upbringing. I um, was was brought up in Birkenhead, uh, near Liverpool. Uh, My mother was uh, of Irish origin, so big Catholic family, uh, member of our Catholic parish. Everybody we knew was Catholic. Mm. So our dentist was Catholic, our doctor was Catholic. You know, at the end of my first term at university, my tutorial partner... I remember turning to her and saying, so what are you doing for Christmas, Kate? And she said, oh, I don't really know when I'm going to go and stay with my mother or my father. And I said, oh, do they not live together? And she said, no, no, they're divorced. And that was the first person I'd ever met whose parents were divorced. Really? So I grew up in yeah. very much in a, in a sort of Catholic bubble. Mm. I went to a Christian Brothers school. Um, people always say, poor you, when I say that, normally. I mean, the Christian Brothers have a terrible reputation for all sorts of reasons we don't need to go into now. Um, I quite liked them, actually. I mean, at the time, obviously, you know, and I, afterwards when I'd left, I, uh, I I, I used to kind of rant a bit about them and write rather unpleasant articles about them. Really? But actually, you know, here I am doing yep. what, what I want to do. And uh, I think I owe quite a lot of that to them, really. Mm. So if there's a Christian brother listening, I don't think many of them left anymore. Thank <laughs> you, brothers, for doing that. Um, but no, I've, so I've always been Catholic. It's yeah. never really occurred to me... Not to be, which is awful, mm. really, because I suppose you should think about it. And, when you, and
1: when you say it's never occurred to you to change, is that, is that on a sort of practical, this is my culture, this is what I've been brought up in, or is it more a sort of theological, I've no, I've no issues with the theology of the Catholic Church, why would I change? Uh, no, I've got lots of those. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it is, um, it's, it's partly what you
0: said, the first bit that you said, it's my culture, it's what I've grown up in. Yeah. I also believe very strongly in terms of faith that you work with what you've got. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea that you constantly change church all the time because you don't like a particular decision they've made. I mean, there are lots of Catholics who do that. Who say, mm. like, "Oh, I heard a sermon last week, and you know the priest wasn't very nice about divorced people or whatever, so I left." Right. Like, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, I've never, I've never felt that. Um, I've always felt pretty critical of, uh, of the. Uh, uh, some aspects of the teaching of the Catholic Church Mm -hmm. and and remain that although of course we've got an absolutely wonderful Pope at the moment Mm. so I'm very very happy with Pope Francis I think he understands what's important Mm. and I think in any church the idea that you're going to love every bit of it Mm. I I, I just don't get it really Mm. Um, I think there are going to be we're all going to have we're individuals Mm. it's just like every word has different different meanings every individual is going to take things in different ways Mm. but I feel very comfortable there it's my world
1: Talking a bit more about about journalism i 'm very aware we 're not a very trusted profession <laughs> um, but i've i 've often thought and you know you talk about your your sort of strong Catholic faith and background and how that you know, that mixes in with your career as well. Seems to me that journalism at its best has a very high regard for truth. And certainly the same could be said of, of any kind of Christian faith, Catholic or otherwise, that truth is, is very central. So, so is there a kind of natural tie in there with when it comes to reporting and seeking truth, hopefully in a positive sense within journalism, there is an element of Christian faith that underpins that?
0: Gosh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's probably true. I've, I've never really thought about it in, in that sense. I mean, some of the journalism I do is around faith. Mm. A lot of it isn't. So, you know, the Daily Telegraph, I write interviews, I go out and report on things. Um, and, you know, some of those... Actually, well, what I find really interesting often in interviews, you'll be sitting talking to somebody and they'll be telling you about their latest film or their latest whatever. And some, and they'll, they'll just use some sort of phrase in there and I can never help it. And you just say, sorry, are you Catholic? And they'll oh yeah, actually, oh, okay. I was brought up Catholic. Okay. It just, it's sort of, I don't know whether... It happens by uh, serendipity or somehow uh, I'm meant to have those conversations. Mm. So um, I hope as a journalist, I can promise you I've never hacked anybody's phone. <laughs> um, I've never put my foot in anybody's door. Okay. And yeah. actually, I am the journalist. God, I actually hope the people who employ me don't hear me saying that. I'm the journalist often in an interview if people say something that is, is that is so exposing that they're going to get roasted for mm. saying it afterwards. I leave it out because mm. I don't think... I mean, some people I leave it in. It depends really if they've, mm. if they've sought the interview and they're desperate for publicity. Mm. I think sometimes, you know, well, you, you make your choices. I think most people don't do that. Mm. So I try. So I hope you'll show me the same uh, respect if I say wow. something appalling in a the moment. the pressure's on now. So I try, to, I try <laughs> to be good. But where I do think faith informs what you do is what you're interested in, and, and as well as kind of interviews and all those usual things. I mean, the other subject that I'm, I, I, I've been very involved in is um, uh, prison reform. Mm. And that, that is entirely, I think that, I don't think you have to be a person of faith to believe in prison reform, mm. absolutely not. But I do think, you know, fundamental to a, a Christian viewpoint is that every person is capable of reform, uh, rehabilitation, or as we might call it, redemption. Mm. So I think it absolutely informs that. So, yes, it, 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 the professional and the private are, mm. are, are very much part and parcel sure. of what I do.
1: Yeah, and mixed in with that, I was going to mention your uh, one of your other books, uh, 50 Religious Ideas <laughs> You Really Need to Know About, <laughs> which is such a sort of fascinating uh, title. It's a
0: series. It wasn't my idea of the title, <laughs> the religion bit I did. They, they'd run a whole series 50 okay. Things About Physics. Okay. There's pro- inevitably, there's going to be one called 50 Things About Sex. Obviously sure. They didn't ask me to do that. Uh, 50 <laughs> (laughs) Physics, chemistry, maths, all those things. So I can't take take credit for the idea. Uh,
1: It it makes me... Sold fabulously well. People really really want to know. Really? Well, it kind of doesn't surprise me because I think a lot of people pointed out that in today's world, you can't understand, actually, a lot of world news without understanding the religious underpinning of it. And so is that... This, I mean, I'm sure you didn't write that book with journalists in mind, but, but is there an issue here in the media, in the world we work in, with religious literacy, with not always understanding the massive, religious underpinning of a story? Massive one. And it cuts both ways, really,
0: because I think people don't understand. And so, in one sense, I benefit from that, mm. because uh, newspaper editors think, oh. This is about the Pope. Now, we couldn't write about it ourselves because it's just so complicated. <laughs> so we'll get this man to write about it. And that's, that's great. It's that's that's, great for your career. That's kept me going for the last... Yeah. I'm not going to say how many decades. <laughs> uh, that's kept Because we're radio and they can't see. Oh, no, there's a camera here, isn't there? <laughs> um, uh, uh, so I think that is good. But actually, it, it, the, the net effect of that is that it pushes religion to the margins mm. from, from, the, from, the, uh, from the public square. Mm. Religion is like everything else. It's a bit like people say to you. So my kids go to Catholic schools. People say, so what, you know, do they learn about the catechism? Do they learn about contraception? Do they go to math all the time? You go, no, they learn about physics, <laughs> chemistry, math i mean catholicism is for me anyway and in a school uh, it's about an ethos it's about an approach to life it's mm. not about a specific subject and i think that 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 understanding of the of the place of religion in the public square is the phrase that we use at the moment is, is has slightly been lost you mm. know people of faith can contribute. And, and, you know, we weren't helped by people like Tony Blair, mm. um, you know, waiting till he left office in order to become a Catholic. And Alistair right. Campbell, his press secretary, saying we don't do God. Mm. You know, actually, we all do God because we all live in a country, in this country at least, where our laws have been shaped by Christianity. Mm. You know, why does the state endorse marriage? Why do, why do we have all sorts of rules and regulations around things? It is because we come from a Christian heritage, and actually, if we understood that, mm. we, we might get on rather better. Mm. You know, people still love walking around old Anglican churches in the countryside, um, and but they have absolutely no idea what they're looking at. Yeah. And it, 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 it is extraordinary. And, you know, and the classic thing, all those—the awful thing—all those um, those polls that they do every Easter, where they ask a group of eighteen-year-olds, uh, you know, what happened on Easter uh, at Easter, and they get terribly confused around, you know. Was Jesus a chocolate bunny? (laughs) Was was he kind of, you know... it is dementing. We should at least understand those, those yes. roots of our yeah. of, of our society, and, and that's part of the yeah. the exile of religion from the public square. Mm. Uh, partly its own fault, it has to be said. Partly because of the way it has behaved in the past. Partly because people associate it with uh, bullying and scandal and abuse. Mm. And that actually, it absolutely is part of the story. Let's not let's not look away from that. Uh, Christianity, particularly associated with anti semitism across Europe, appalling. Mm. There's no excuse for any of it, but
1: it doesn't mean that it's all bad.
0: It's- Mm. There there, there is good and bad in everyone. Mm.
1: One of the things about kind of what we do here at Premier in, having, in talking to a wide range of Christians from across the denominations. And of course, our listeners across the denominations is seeking to understand where different Christians are coming from. And it strikes me that, that what you were just saying about people having all these misconceptions about what happens in Catholic school, there can be just as much misconceptions within Christianity, uh, perhaps what Protestants think of Catholics. Have you encountered any of that? The kind of questions you might get asked or the assumptions that are made from other Christians who don't share your Catholicism, who uh, perhaps a little bit perplexed or need setting right on what you do or don't believe or practice
0: yes i mean the classic example of obviously is the jehovah's witnesses knocking on my front door and saying uh, could they talk to me about jesus and, and i say, so well, i'm catholic and they say yeah but what about jesus and you know <laughs> well, what exactly is it you think we believe in and i think the catholic <laughs> church in particular um is sometimes uh, is sometimes thought rather odd mm. in in that way and I think that's quite English. I think that's to do with the Reformation here and the persecution of Catholics from Elizabethan times. I mean, through to 1829, Catholic emancipation, um, 1850, restoration of the Catholic hierarchy here. Um, I think Catholics have always been thought of as a kind of fifth column mm. and people don't really... Uh, uh, I trust them and of course you've got all that in that awful office day um, uh, Da Vinci code thing right. which made everyone think we've spent all our time whipping ourselves and, um, <laughs> and trying to set up a theocracy so there's a lot of kind of ignorance around Catholicism yeah. Um, and part of that, I think, is to do with Catholicism's own arrogance, and right. that brings us back to Luther. Mm. You know, the way the Catholic Church treated Luther mm. was arrogant. You know, Pope Hadrian the VI, instead of saying, oh, he might have a point here, or he seems to have attracted an awful lot of people who agree with him, he called him this petty monk. Mm. And they just kept dismissing him. They wouldn't listen. And actually, that's what... The really important thing, the reason the book is called Catholic Dissident is that Luther died thinking he was still a Catholic. Right, and, yeah. um, and although his reputation is for intransigence and mm. refusal to budge, he, he actually wanted to come to some accommodation. I mean, uh, to be fair, he wanted the Catholic Church to, to, to... If you think of the gap between them as a mile, he, yeah. wanted, he wanted the Catholic Church to go nine-tenths of the mile yeah. to meet him. Yeah. But he, st- he still felt that. Mm. And the, the net result of, after his death of the wars of religion is that not only do you have this terrible fracture through Christianity, mm. but it's, it's a bit of a kind of Berlin Wall. So for 450 years, Catholics and Lutherans just didn't speak to each other. Catholics continue, Catholic writers continued to write nonsense about Luther, about what he did, that his mother was a prostitute. and right. Just vile, vile nonsense. Mm. And, um, and the same sort of, um, you know, Luther's own language about the papacy, he called the Pope the Antichrist, he called Rome hell. Mm. You know, that, that, that shut that different religious groups off from each other. Um, I think we live in much better times. And of course, mm. the great symbol of this is that the 500th anniversary of yeah. the 95 Theses is being jointly organised by the um, Catholic Church and the World Lutheran Federation. Yes. And they say they agree on everything now. Um, <laughs> and they're having a joint festival. I think that's good because you know, we live in a world... Where the popular conception, when they when they do think about religion, is that religion causes wars and divisions, mm. and actually Luther is part of their case that you know when he died there was a hundred years war devastated Germany terrible terrible time. But here we are five hundred years on, mm. and they're doing everything together. So these wounds can be healed. Mm. And if you think of the other great wounds in, in other faiths, mm. um, you know, think about Islam and, and the split between Sunni and Shia, you know, things would be so much better if those things could be brought together. So mm-hmm. here, in Luther and these celebrations, mm-hmm. it's an example of, of religion as a healing mm-hmm.
1: thing. Yeah, and you've written, of course, not just about Catholicism or Christianity, about a number of different religions. You mentioned this, the Sunni-Shia divide, because there has been talk of Islam needs its own reformation. So just as Christianity had this reformation and things dramatically changed, you know, in many cases for the better... Islam needs this and if there could be a reformation theologically within Islam that would um, stop some of the extremist forms of of Islam that we've seen. Would you you agree with that?
0: Um, It's really, really not for me to tell Islam what it needs. But I think what we absolutely have to be careful of thinking is that the actions and the statements of a few extremists actually represent what Islam itself is. Um, the Quran is actually quite a difficult book to read, but uh, it is really, really worth the effort if you if you if you say it. I mean, the the the, the narr- in a, from a, to a, to Western eyes, you get very confused. The narrator seems to be changing all the time. You're never quite sure what's going on. Mm. But read it. there's much much better English translations now. Read it, and actually, the thing that strikes me reading the Quran is it's. It's so like the Judeo-Christian tradition. I mean, mm. they are so close to each other, all of them. I, I hope that isn't in, insulting to anyone who's listening. They're very, very close, I and mean, we really ought to understand that ninety-nine percent of Islam is the best of Islam. I mean, it's a bit like it's it's a bit like people judging all Catholics mm. by the monk in the Da Vinci Code and assuming <laughs> that we've all got scars on our back because we right. spend all our time madly whipping ourselves. Yeah. You know, you, you just you've got to get these things in perspective. Mm. So. We need to know more about Islam, and mm. what we hear at the moment is very, very distorting.
1: We're going to talk more about the book, obviously, Martin Luther, Catholic mm. Dissident, in uh, in the second part of this interview. I just wanted to finish, though, by asking um, if you're going to be marking the Reformation. We mentioned it's going to be October, really, a mm-hmm. lot of the celebrations. Will you personally be marking the Reformation in, in any way? Are you looking forward to some of the things that will be happening later this year, or is it just a case of... Uh, staying in the UK and sort of promoting the book, um, you won't be going over there yourself.
0: It's a bit difficult, isn't it? In that, um, uh, so one of the things they've issued the, mm. the Catholic Church and the World Lutheran Federation to celebrate this anniversary a whole series of joint liturgies that mm. they want people to do. Right. Uh, there are only about three Lutheran churches in the whole of uh, in the whole of Britain. So um, I could go to Germany. I spent quite a lot of time in Germany researching the book. Uh, there's a possibility. Haven't decided on that yet. Um, I think I would probably very much like to go to a Lutheran church and experience that. I mean, one of the things I think I write about it in the book. When I was in Wittenberg, which is the, mm. the town that Luther spent most of his life in, uh, we went to a, um, uh, a Lutheran service in the Stad Church, which is the church in the center of Wittenberg, where Luther gave most of his uh, of his uh, his sermons. It was his favorite church. And there was a lovely American uh, Lutheran from uh, Minnesota, I think he was from, um, who uh, led, led the liturgy there. And actually, the thing that I felt most strongly about it when I was sitting there, my son was with me because he took some of the photographs in the book. I just sort of turned to him and said, it's a bit like being in our local Catholic church, isn't it? I mean, it was almost, it was hard. I mean, clearly, there are, there, there are differences. Yeah. The Reverend Cliff was married. Mrs. Cliff was in the front row mm. leading... Um, uh, my, how mighty is the, the a mighty fortress is my god? She sang us that in a cappella, which is pretty impressive. You don't get that very often in the Catholic <laughs> Church, um, but in, a, in nearly every other way, I mean, they were the same. Mm. So, I think. If we could, again, if we could experience the the everyday, the routine sameness mm. of what we are, we mm. might get over
1: some of these suspicions of each other. Mm. How interesting. Well, that brings us to the end of part one here on the profile. But join us again after the break because I'm talking to Peter Stanford. He is the author of Martin Luther Catholic Dissident it's a book out now it's a biography of Martin Luther published by Hodder and Stoughton we're going to be talking more about Peter's own life and also about this fascinating figure of Martin Luther in this the 500th anniversary year of the Reformation so join us again in part 2 for more we'll be right back The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio Well, hello and welcome back to the profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales and today I am speaking to Peter Stanford. He's a journalist and broadcaster, former editor of the Catholic Herald, and uh, he currently writes for a number of uh, newspapers and magazines. His latest book, though, is Martin Luther, Catholic Dissident, and it's published by Hodder and Stoughton and Peter joins me in studio now Peter welcome back thank you great to have you with us to talk through this fascinating figure of Martin Luther I guess when most people think of the reformation and of Martin Luther they probably do think of this guy nailing 95 thesis to uh, this door of this church in Wittenberg and this reformation beginning but you've already mentioned of course or hinted at part in part one that there were probably no nails involved um, so no. what really happened?
0: Uh, well, what we do know is that in his life Martin Luther uh, wrote a great deal, uh, wrote many letters, gave many talks, and for the last fifteen years of his life, um, he used to give these table talks. So he, he and his he and his wife lived in what had been his monastery. Uh, was now their home, but it was very large. They took in lodgers. So he would talk about. He'd go over and over his life, really. And nowhere in any of those documents, which now uh, stretch to one hundred and twenty one volumes in the kind of Weimar archive, mm. is there a single mention of him nailing anything to a church door at all. The first reference you can find to it was written after his death. That that, that um, one of his uh, followers, who was trying to sort of dramatize his mm. story, uh, wrote it. Um, what seems well. A, they wouldn't have nailed anything to anything at the time. If you were going to attach something to a church door, you would have used a piece of wax. Okay. And I think sometimes when people think about him nailing things to the door, they well, two things that come out of it. One is that... um, is, is that, that somehow it was a bit like putting a petition up on the church door, sort of mm. saying, you know, we don't like the government's policy on whatever sign your name's here. We're talking about 95 theses. Mm. These are 95 points for discussion and debate. Mm. Most of them are about three sentences long. Right. Think about it. Yeah. We're not talking about a piece of paper. We're talking about <laughs> hanging wallpaper. It yes. would have covered the entire door. And in Wittenberg today, this is the castle church, uh, which was the, next to the, um, the uh, elector's palace. Um, They've put new doors on the church and they've got the 95 theses there, but they put them in such microscopic handwriting to get them all in. And the tourists all kind of end up by pushing right up against it in order to try and read them all. So it just doesn't work on on a practical point of view. Martin Luther's big idea, we talked about it before, justification by faith alone. What he means by that is how you get to heaven. Mm. It's, It's about salvation. He was talking about salvation and God's judgment. How does God judge your life? And he says... Based on Saint Paul's letter to the Romans, that God God's justice is all about judging you in terms of simply your faith. Mm. Um, that He makes, and the the only thing you can do in terms of your faith. The image that Luther had was that at the end of all our lives, we stand essentially naked before God, but with only the Bible to guide us. Mm. So that's what he, that's what he meant by it all. So what he he particularly disagreed with in a a theoretical way, was the Catholic Church's practice of telling people that if they gave money to the poor, mm. if they went to church all the time, if they cleaned the church, if they were good, if they did good things, that they would get to heaven. Mm. Um, it wasn't that he didn't value those things at mm. all, what, what you usually called good works. It wasn't that he didn't value good works, he just didn't think they were the basis on, sure. for salvation. One of the other things that the Catholic Church did at the time was in order to raise money, in this particular case, to raise money for the rebuilding of St. Peter's, they would sell things called indulgences, which were basically a scrap of paper that said all the sins that have been committed by Sam, I'm sure you (laughs) don't commit any sins, uh, on his his death will be forgiven. Yeah. And you paid for that. Worse... If one of your relatives had died, and purgatory was a very strong idea then, this kind of waiting room for heaven. Uh, if you thought your relatives were stuck in purgatory, what you, what you would do is if you paid money for them, that they would somehow be upgraded to heaven. Mm. So, and what Luther said is, A, it's not about money. B, the church authorities cannot double-guess God. Mm. This is God's judgment. It's not for the church to say, oh, well, you know, we've we've, been, we've bought a franchise from God, we can kind of sell it. So that's what he objected to. So 1517, one of these indulgence sellers, they were going all over Europe, uh, called uh, Turzel, he was a, a Dominican, came to a town called Jutteborg, which was very near to Wittenberg. And lots of Luther's parishioners started going over there to buy indulgences. And he was furious about mm. it. He said, this shouldn't happen. So 95 Theses were his protest about the sale of indulgences. Mm. But of course, given there are 95, five of them rather than three very quickly when you start discussing that you discuss the basis on which the church thinks it can sell indulgences mm. and the basis on which the church thought it could sell indulgences was papal authority so almost from the beginning these these uh, these theses were uh, ch- tackling challenging undermining papal authority mm. and what he did was he wrote them all down and he sent them to his local archbishop and said, Archbishop, look at this. Mm. The Archbishop was a bit of a wet lettuce, so instead of dealing with them himself, he sent them on to Rome. And so Rome then started looking at it. But what made it such a big event was that we're talking um, in uh, Germany in the uh, early part of the 16th century... the the, the early days of the printing industry. Mm. Um, And so there were printers in every town. Luther handed over his 95 Theses to the local printer who started making rather crude um, summaries of them Mm. um, with... um, with woodcuts in them for illustration. Not many people were literate then, so the idea was that if you gave the gist of it, the literate would read for the illiterate and show the illiterate the pictures. Those pamphlets spread like wildfire, first of all around the town, then around Electoral Saxony, which was the the part of Germany that uh, Luther operated in, then around Germany, and within about two or three months, we know that they were circulating in Switzerland, in France, in England, and Mm. even in Rome. So it was like, I think we would call it, a social media phenomenon. Right. I mean, it's a bit like Donald Trump kind of, (laughs) (laughs) tweeting something overnight and the world hearing the next day. That's what Luther was doing. So in a sense... It's really important to understand what the 95 Theses were. Mm. They weren't just about indulgences, they were about papal authority. Mm. But in a way, they touched a nerve, Mm. because in Germany at that time, a lot of discontent about the arrogance of the papacy, sort Mm. of fleecing Germany to build buildings in Rome, treating the Germans like they were sort of poor cousins. Also, a lot of socio-economic discontent in Germany at the time. This is the period of the kind of real birth of the money economy of capitalism. Suddenly money was coming into things and they were feeling their noses were put out of joint. Mm. They also disliked the fact that Germany was so fragmented with all these individual princes who in theory were were subject to the Holy Roman Emperor who was appointed by the Pope, but but not really either. So he, he just touched... These, these were the discontented. Mm. Um, I mean, again, there, are, there is an awful parallel here between Martin Luther and Donald Trump in lots of ways. And <laughs> that Luther was a populist. Right. Luther touched, an, um, uh, touched on a deep well of discontent mm-hmm. about people who felt left out by the establishment, mm-hmm. felt uh, dis- disenfranchised, disempowered. And Luther used these alternative channels of Mm. of, of publishing, of printed pamphlets, to build up a mass movement, Mm. which the whole establishment stood against. And, of course, one of the things that he wanted to do in his pamphlets was he thought Rome was hopelessly corrupt. He said he wanted to drain the Vatican swamp, as Mm. it would be, as as, as Trump might put it. And so it's interesting, those parallels, (laughs) isn't it? Particularly at this moment. You just see him, and in the intemperateness of his language sometimes. Mm. So what would happen? So in um, 1521... Uh, The Catholic Church, having treated Luther with great arrogance, already decided they were going to excommunicate him, so they sent him the ball of excommunication. And I think most of us. I mean, obviously, I hopefully I'm never going to be excommunicated. <laughs> um, I think if I got a bull of excommunication, I'd go away and think about it and have a little you know, talk to a few people about it. Luther almost immediately got it and sent stra- r- straight away, wrote a tract which was called against this execrable bull of the Antichrist, <laughs> and just literally within the day it, that was circulating through Europe. And it makes me think of Trump in the morning, watching yeah, the news headlines, yeah. thinking, "Oh, I don't know, Meryl Streep overrated. I'm going to send it out on yeah, Twitter yeah. without thinking." Yeah. He wrote in anger, at yeah. Luther, a lot of the time. Many of his more substantial documents, he would reflect more on what he did, but he wrote in anger. Lots of really interesting Mm. parallels. It's the relevance. I'm really, really keen that people see that Martin Luther is absolutely relevant to where we are now.
1: Mm. That's really interesting, especially the Donald Trump connection. I was going to ask you about about relevance. Um, Perhaps for someone who isn't even a Christian today... You know, why should they be interested in someone like Martin Luther? Perhaps they have no interest in religion. You know, is is there an argument that Martin the, Martin Luther had such a dramatic effect on Europe that you know this kind of resonates to this day in some way, and you should acknowledge this? What's the What's the significance for someone? Well,
0: threefold. The first two I'll just, just I'll, I'll I'll mention very quickly. The first is that. Um, One of the things Luther believed very powerfully was that people should read Scripture themselves and not be told by experts, as Mm. Michael Gove might you know, bishops, (laughs) priests or whatever. Um, So he translated the Bible into German. At that time, the Catholic Church was insisting the Bible was always in Latin, so people couldn't read it. It was inaccessible. And his translation of the Bible, I'm afraid I'm not fluent in German, uh, even by the standards of my own Italian that I mentioned before. I'm not fluent in German, but I'm told that the language that he used in the Bible is A, uh, absolutely comprehensible uh, comprehensible, but also very beautiful as well mm. and so he is credited by most modern German scholars with sort of inventing or codifying the German language mm. and he made Lutherism was, a, was a, a religion of the book the Germans buy more books per head of the population than any other nation in the world really? so did, did Luther make the Germans very bookish mm. so he's relevant to them in that way um, there's also an argument that says that the, the Protestant work ethic, that mm. we, 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 all, we all vaguely know what it means, was born in Germany at the time of Luther. That was part of Luther's contribution. So Luther, in a sense, turned the world capitalist in, mm-hmm. that, in that way. And there, you know, there is Germany, powerhouse of, 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 uh, of Europe, certainly, economically. So that, there, there's a relevance to think about and debate. But I think the most important thing about Luther, and it comes back again to this idea, of, well, he called it sola scripturum, only scripture, mm. that you would read the scriptures. So take the sacraments. The Catholic Church has seven sacraments. Luther said, I've read the Gospels, and in, this, in the Gospels only, Jesus only institutes two of them. He institutes Eucharist, and he institutes, institutes baptism. You can have the other ones as rituals, but you can't have them as sacraments, because mm-hmm. it isn't there in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. He said that you had to read the Gospels, you had to read the Scriptures, and make your own mind up. And that is a seismic change, mm. because what had happened beforehand is that religion in, the late, in late medieval Europe, which is when he, when he was uh, operating was a collective thing Mm. and uh, doctrine was handed down by tradition the Mm. catholic church's great tradition it didn't really matter if it was in the gospel or not their Mm. tradition was to do things um in in a certain way you know we all we all know from the gospels that saint peter had a mother-in-law so the first pope was married and but the catholic church said the priest had to be celibate Mm. you know so all of those things so he moved from the collective to the individual and he moved as well to individual conscience And that is key not only in terms of religion, Mm. but in terms of the development of of Western European society. And if you speak to any uh, philosophers or historians of the 17th and 18th century, they will say that by breaking that stranglehold of Rome and saying to individuals, you make up your own mind, you read, you think, You sort it out with your own conscience. He was introducing ideas of of, of the primacy of conscience, of human liberty, of individual liberty, and ultimately of human rights. Mm. It may not be what he intended, Mm. but he absolutely, he is the forerunner of all of that. Mm. Under that stranglehold of late medieval Catholicism, you would never have got those things. Mm. And of course, what you get very soon after Luther's break with Rome is that other Protestants come along. And they read the scripture. And, of course, the problem is by telling everyone when they read the scripture, it's getting back to words again, what we said before. Mm -hmm. When they read the scripture, they read different things. So, classically, uh, Zwingli and Calvin, uh, contemporaries of Luther, they read the bit about the Eucharist, and they didn't believe in the real presence. They said it was all symbolic, Mm -hmm. and they, they got that from the words. And so Protestantism then fractures enormously. Mm. And of course, the key thing about saying to people, go and read the Bible and make your own mind up, is they can read the Bible and decide that it's all a pile of nonsense and they want nothing to do with it. So Luther is absolutely the man Mm. who created the context in which we operate now in the 21st century. Yeah,
1: And I wonder as well if, if saying go away, read the Bible, make your own mind up, could have perhaps resulted in the fact there are so many different Protestant denominations. Absolutely. As every Christian reads the yeah. Bible and has a yeah. slight different, like yeah, something, absolutely. you're in danger of creating yet another denomination. And
0: Luther struggled with that. Mm. Um, he struggled with two things. And so, you know, his great breakthrough, 1517, excommunicated, 1521. And then really from about 1522, 1523 onwards until his death in 1546, he was creating what was effectively a, a parallel church within a church um he didn't set up a separate church he hoped that one day mm. it would be um, it would be reabsorbed into catholicism as i said before he died a catholic he he, yeah. he 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 believed that it was just a question of the catholic church realizing he was right mm. um, uh, how do you structure that then? How do you structure your, 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 your organisation, even your parallel church? And that is one of the problems that Protestantism has mm. always had. So in the Catholic Church, we have this idea that the Pope, in certain matters of faith and morals, I should stress, <laughs> not in everything, is infallible. Mm. So he can sort of say, you know, we've all read it. You've all thought that. I think this and this is what's true. Yeah. And that is both a strength and a weakness. I mean, the great strength of Catholicism is its certainty. Mm. And people are very drawn to certainty. Mm. I mean, we all want the world to be black and white, really, Mm. because it would be so much easier. It isn't. And so the reality, you know, you have those ideals of, of, of Catholicism and then you have the realities of Catholics' lives, which mm. are kind of messy and complicated.
1: Yeah, which brings me on to this question about one of your books, actually. Oh, uh, it's called God. Catholics and Sex. Yeah. And the reason I bring it up is because I think sometimes there is a disconnect between what the Catholic Church may teach on a sort of structural level and then perhaps what the average Catholic believes or does, and, you know, especially that, behind think, closed I think, doors. I think that's...
0: Put, well, some, some do it in the open, who knows? Um, but
1: it, I think that's putting it mildly, really, isn't so, it? So bring that, bring that into this book that you released, Catholics and Sex, and give us some of the context of that and, and how that came about and how these two things were like. uh,
0: Well, I was editor of the Catholic Herald, and, um, and one of the things you come across all the time is precisely what you've just said the realities of people's lives and the ideals of the church and the ideals of the church at that time as do of the Catholic Church between 88 and 92 Pope John Paul II was telling us that kind of marriage was indissoluble uh, that gay people uh, couldn't be admitted to communion uh, a whole list of these ridiculous things and um and, you know, you, well, at its simplest, in a Lutheran sense, you go back to the Gospels and you think, OK, so where mm. exactly is it that Jesus tells us that priests have to be celibate? Where exactly is it that Jesus tells us that women are second-class citizens? Where exactly? There isn't a single word on mm. homosexuality. And please don't tell me that there weren't any gay people in Jerusalem in the first century. So all of these things, you think, what's going on? So that was the impetus for writing Catholics and so right. which I... I I absolutely still own in mm. in that way um, the way that I wrote it, I wrote it with a really good friend, uh, an Anglo-Catholic called Kate Saunders, who is a journalist. And then we then made this uh, series on Channel Four, um, which I'm very made a slightly notorious. Uh, we we decided the best way to deal with it was to uh, was to, to to adopt a kind of jokey tone. And I think that the, the truth about any jokes that you write down is that when you look back on them a few years later, they're not funny anymore. And uh, and so I regret the way in which I put it over. Right. Um, I, don't regret the, um, I don't regret the argument that mm. I was making um, at that time. And I do think, when we talked before about why is religion regarded with suspicion, there are a thousand and one things that my own church, and many other churches as well, but in my case what I know most about is the Catholic Church, does around the world which are absolutely brilliant so for instance for the telegraph i went out to argentina uh, went around the shanty towns that um pope francis used to visit when he was cardinal archbishop there and looked at the work that he was doing and there is a sense in lots of places that i've visited i used to do lots of trips with CAFOD, the catholic overseas aid agency as well you would go to places which literally were at the end of the world where they had nobody else who was standing up for them and the churches were there supporting those people. And that is just brilliant. And mm. that is what the gospel is about. Mm. That is what Jesus would have been doing. Mm. So there's all those really positive things about the church. And I try very hard to talk about yeah. them. And people always sort of say, ah, oh, but you know, the Pope causes all those problems by not letting people use contraceptives. And you think, Well, up to a point. I mean, obviously, you know... I mean, I think there's a danger in thinking that everyone in the third world is is so um, supine and that they will do whatever the Pope says. We're all so clever in the first world that we can make our own mind up. Right. I think let's be careful around that. Mm. But I do think that sexual teaching... Uh, does the Catholic Church a disservice. I think it's... And actually, one of the great things about Pope Francis is he talks now in terms of kind of mercy and compassion, meeting people where they are. So, Mm. you know, classically, I think it was his first overseas trip to Brazil. On the plane on the way back, uh, one of the journalists said to him, so what would you say to if someone came to you and said, I'm Catholic and gay? Mm. And he said, who am I to judge? Mm. That's the right answer. That's Mm. absolutely... Well, there are better answers, frankly. (laughs) Uh, You know, hurrah might be quite a good answer. But... um, but I have to say, I feel much more comfortable with the Catholic Church now mm. in this particular era than I have at any time before in my life. I think they found something like 40% of Catholics, mm. practising Catholics here, thought that there were certain circumstances in which mm. women choosing abortion could be justified. Mm. You know, let, let's just deal with the reality mm. yeah. as
1: opposed to pretend it doesn't exist. Sure. It's, it strikes me that in your own work, you've, you've been able to do this very varied, you know, broadcasting, journalism, writing books. Do you enjoy the sort of the mixture that that brings Uh, Yes,
0: Um, I think uh, the great thing about journalism is there's a terrible adrenaline rush in it, um, in that they ring you in the morning and say, can you do this by four o'clock? And and it may be sad to admit it, but I really like that. I like that kind of buzz of doing it. uh, So journalism is great and often introduces you to, uh, to subjects that you might find interesting, gives you a sense of what's going on. So that is all good. I love taking a longer, harder look at things. Mm. Uh, so books work very well from that mm. point of view. Um, and the other thing that I do is, i I mentioned just before, I run this thing called the Longford Trust. So years ago, mm. I wrote a biography of Lord Longford, in case people don't remember, uh, Labour cabinet minister, died in 2001, um, but spent 70 years of his life visiting um, prisoners. And I was very associated with one infamous prisoner, Myra Hindley, uh, the Moors murderers. You, you met her, didn't you? I used you? to go and visit you her in prison. You spent some time with her. What
1: was that like? <laughs>
0: Oh, uh, odd. Uh, yeah, well, I, was gonna, I could say watch the film because um, Peter Morgan made a film of my visits to Myra Hindley right. and about Lord Longford called, um, called Longford with Jim Broadbent and mm. Samantha Morton. And that is really about that in lots of ways. Did, um,
1: you, did you befriend her in any way? Or- yeah.
0: Yeah. Why wouldn't I befriend her? Well, should I not befriend her because she'd done a terrible thing? It's a, good,
1: it's a good question. I guess some people would be shocked to hear that because there is... She's a human being. Well, that's the thing, though. I think when a lot of people... Um, are notorious in that way there's a certain and some people blame the media for this there's a certain sort oh, of stop blaming them. I mean, it's a circle
0: it's not a lie <laughs> it's not people at one end and media at the other we all we collude in it all let's sure. just let's just let's get over that one but
1: the sort of idea that this person is in some way less than human because they've done a terrible thing that is a common idea i mean in the public well, discourse this is a yeah. common idea whether you blame the media for it or not well i read the gospels so and the gospels tell me that no one is
0: unforgivable um, it really wasn't for me to forgive Myra Hindley. I, I hadn't suffered at her mm. hands. I hadn't lost members of my family. And what was she like? Um, she was, well, she didn't look like she looks in all the pictures. That picture is always used for a very particular reason. Mm. So, and again, it's there in that Peter Morgan film where I went to the visiting room and, um, and it's, I don't know if any people have been to prison visiting rooms, but you stand there and the prison officer calls out the names of all the people to go into the next room where people are visiting. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, please don't say Myra Hindley. And, of course, you have to get up and walk through. Mm. And about halfway through, you go, Myra Hendley. And then you get up, and literally everybody <laughs> looks at you. And you're going through. For all the reasons you've just sort of said, oh. Yeah. Anyway, so you go through. And, um, and you walk into a man am looking for a woman with blonde hair who mm. looks like thunder. Mm. And I couldn't find her at all. And, um, and then I was wandering around. No one was helping me, obviously, because I shouldn't have been doing what I was doing. And then all the other visitors came in. There was only one woman left in the corner looking away. And she, she didn't look anything like that. She was intelligent. But actually, that isn't the the, the point. The Mm. point about Myra Hindley, I'm afraid, and painful as it is for people to to take on board, is that um, at her trial in 1966, the trial judge said that Ian Brady, her accomplice, was irredeemably evil and Mm -hmm. should spend the rest of his life in a secure mental unit. They said he sentenced Myra Hindley to life, and he said the tariff should be 25 years uh, because he thought that there was a possibility of of, of reform because she had been corrupted by Brady. She served her 25 years. She got an open university degree. She was a model prisoner. Mm. And and painful again, she was the great success story of our Mm. prison reform rehabilitation Mm. service. So gets to the end of the 25 years and she applies for parole. We have criteria for parole in law. She met them all. Mm. Why didn't we release her? We didn't release her because it wasn't acceptable to public opinion. Now, if we're going to run a justice system on the basis of what's, uh, what's right for public opinion, that's fine, but let's just be honest about it and mm. say that's what we do. We can have an opinion poll every time and decide who we let in or out. If we say we run it on principles of justice, mm. she should have been released. So mm. I'm afraid in that sense she was a political prisoner. So it isn't for me to judge whether she was, she was wrong or she would have done all those things again, whether mm. she was properly rehabilitated, whether she was pretending. The experts in prison... Mm whose view we, we trust in everybody else's case said that she was fit to be released. She wanted to go into a convent. Mm. I mean, she wasn't going to do anyone any harm there. She might have done some good. So the, we didn't trust the experts. We listened to public opinion. I'm afraid that's wrong. Mm. So when you talk about prison
1: reform... Is it, is it
0: that sort of an issue
1: that really drives
0: you? At, at its simplest, it means treating people like individuals and human beings. And we all make mistakes mm. and not blighting the rest of their life for the mistake they make. And a mistake is a really, we're getting back to words again, mistake is a very little word. Mm. And sometimes they can do horrendous things mm. and, and ruin other families' lives. But do they have to suffer for the rest of their life for that? I think mm. we have to think hard about that and mm. what that tells us about our humanity. So in the very specific case of the Longford Trust, what we do is we give scholarships to young ex-prisoners who want to go to university. Right. So these are young people who often have missed out on education. It's a really, really clear link between being excluded from school and going to prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we might want to think about that when we're excluding people from school. There's a really clear link between domestic circumstances, economic, you know, the, the state of your family, and going to prison. These are people who go to prison. Prison education departments switch on the light about education. They want to go forward. We support them. We give them money and we give them mentoring going forward. And you would be, you'd be surprised at the obstacles they face. So every university runs risk assessments. Some universities just won't let them go. They've served their sentence. They've served the sentence the court has given them. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, yeah. they are reformed yeah. and they, they can rejoin society, but they can't. whole stack of prejudices, uh, one after the other, face them. Um, and so we, we try and navigate their way through that. Really, eighty five percent of them get their degrees, get jobs, and go on. And actually, it's not just in their interest; it's in our interest. It mm. costs forty four thousand pounds a year to keep someone in prison. Why why would we want to, to Why would we want to encourage people to reoffend?
1: We're coming towards the end <laughs> of the program, and a small to... rant there. But no, I worry, there no, I wanted to I wanted to bring in your work with the Longford Trust because it is it is fascinating. And I wish we had more time to to go into depth about some of the reforms you'd like to see. But we should probably just bring it back to the book finally, mm. as I say, it's called Martin Luther Catholic Dissident, it's out now. Um, We are 500 years since the Reformation and this is probably quite a big question to end on, but there does seem to me to be a slight debate going on as to whether um, particularly Protestants should be apologising for it or celebrating it. The the Archbishop of Canterbury just earlier this year said something and uh, people were concerned that he was... He apologised that, you know, the, the Reformation led to wars and conflicts and we should apologise for that. And I think some people were, were um, slightly concerned that we shouldn't be apologising for the theological element because the, what you mentioned before of justification by faith was, was hard fought for in a theological sense. So, you know, is there this sort of strange debate as to whether this is something we should all be celebrating this year or something we should all be a little bit ashamed of?
0: Actually, I was about to say they've been quite careful in not using the word celebration, but actually the, the, uh, the, 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 the events that are going on over the course of this year, uh, the World Lutheran Federation and the Catholic Church have called a joint fest for Jesus Christ. Sounds a bit really, doesn't it? <laughs> um, but that, that's, that's what that's what they've called it. So I suppose the word fest has an element of celebration in there. I mean, I think what we should be celebrating is that they're working together on this. Mm. What we should be celebrating is uh, Luther's courage and Luther's insight, which so shapes Christianity now. What we shouldn't be celebrating is the wars and conflicts that came after mm. us. But let's just be really clear. Let's think about those rather mm. than, than than sort of say, oh, terrible. We should we we should sort of you know not think about this. Let's think about them. Yes, they were. They tended to pit Catholic princes against Protestant princes, supporters of Luther against. But actually, when you look through, a hundred years war basically followed um, uh, Luther's death. Um, the sides keep changing all the time, and they change, and you end up with sort of Catholics and Protestants fighting Catholics and Protestants on, 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 on other sides. Those were wars about politics... They were wars about uh, territory. They were wars about economics. They were wars about social ideals. I think a lot of mm. the time religion is blamed. Mm. Oh, religion causes wars. Wars happen for all sorts of reasons, and religion may be one of them. Mm. Um, but I think the fundamental religious uh, impulse is still towards kind of peace and compassion. Mm. Never do unto others what you wouldn't do, want done unto yourself. Mm. That's the golden rule of all religions. Mm. So that doesn't make us violent. So let's let's reflect on the wars, but let's celebrate this inspiring figure of Luther, who isn't dour and dusty, as people have said. He's actually He was incredibly charismatic in his day, which is why he was so successful. And let's celebrate the fact that we can
1: all now work together mm. as Christians. It's a wonderful place to leave it. Peter Stanford, thank you very much. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for here on The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, and it's been great to have you with us. Just a reminder, you can go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile to hear past shows and also get our podcast, which is now available. But now here on Premier Christian Radio, it's time to say goodbye, and I'll leave you with Dave Rose, who's coming up next with Premier Playback.